0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, a host on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Jennifer Lisa Koslow about her new book, Exhibiting Health Public Health Displays in the Progressive Era. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire, for having me. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: So I, let's see, I've sort of traveled around the, the country. I started off growing up in New Jersey. Then I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for my undergraduate, where I was a history major. And then I took a few years and worked. And then I found myself um, going to graduate school at UCLA. And that is where I got my PhD in history. And so that's uh, that's a little bit about where I went to school. The um, at UCLA, one of my major professor there was Janice Rife, and it was the nineteen nineties, and she was very interested in questions about the internet and hypermedia. And so while I was there, I combined my interests of this newfangled thing called the internet and the World Wide Web, with my interests in urban history, public health, space, and narratives. And uh, did
0: that lead to, how did you come to write Exhibiting Health? Did it sort of grow out of that graduate work?
1: It did and it didn't. So my immediate work that I did for my dissertation, and then my first book, which was Cultivating Health, was on how women shaped public health policy in Los Angeles at the turn of the 20th century. And so I was very interested in how people who are not officials can play a role in determining what civic services are offered. And those women had a faith in the social capacity of government. And so that's where I started But as I was doing that research for that first book, I noticed one of the things that women did was they would create dioramas. (laughs) And I sort of put it to the side. I didn't focus on it. Um, There's maybe one or two mentions of it in the first book. But I thought, hmm, this seems interesting. And I wonder if anyone else did this. And then I finished my PhD and I found myself working at the Newberry Library as the assistant director for the William M. Scholl Center for um, Social History. And it was there that I actually started creating exhibits. Um, I had worked on a major exhibit on free speech in Chicago that was called Outspoken, and it was a joint project between the Newberry Library and the, what is now the Chicago History Museum. And so in, in that capacity, I actually did a lot more thinking about exhibits, and it was out of that experience that I went back and started thinking And looking at the different ways that exhibits were used at the turn of the 20th century for public health. So it was a little bit from my initial research, but then a lot of it was from my own life experience creating exhibits. Could you
0: maybe um, back up just a bit and tell some of our listeners why the progressive era? is a significant period in the history of medicine and public health. So I feel like historians of medicine and public health know this is a really important pivotal period. And this is the period that um, both of your books have focused on, but um, you know, a general audience might, might not know why.
1: Right. And it it is one of those time periods that some people encounter when they're in high school reading books. Um, So I know for me, that was probably, you know, reading *The Jungle*, Upton Sinclair's *The Jungle*, or an excerpt from that was probably the first time I was exposed to what was life like at the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. And I was just always very interested in how people navigated poverty, how they navigated new urban spaces, how they navigated um, new migration, and so those are all the questions why I'm attracted to that time period. So in the late 19th century, as America began industrializing, it became a place that people from around the globe wanted to secure a a spot to work because there were job opportunities. And they may not have always wanted to stay. Um, There were many folks who wanted to Um, take the money they earned and go back, especially um, Italy. Those are one of the population that tended to wanted to come work and go back. Um, But other groups, for instance, Jews from Russia, uh, because of the pogroms and because of anti-Semitism, wanted to move to the United States permanently. And so these jobs, these industrial jobs that were mostly in the Northwest and, uh, not Northwest, um, sorry, Northeast, <laughs> Northeast and Midwest, um, particularly what we would now call um, the Rust Belt. So Chicago, Pittsburgh, um, Cincinnati, even, these attracted um, millions of new migrants to the United States. And at that point, there were no restrictive, or there were restrictive laws, but they were limited to um, Chinese Americans. There were no restrictive laws, really, for most of the Europeans who wanted to move here. There were some restrictive laws that get put into place regarding political ideology. But for the most part, in the United States, people wanted workers. And so millions of Eastern and Southern Europeans come to the United States to find jobs. And they often would move to urban cities because those are the places where they could get these new factory jobs. And so one of the things, though, is when you have millions of people move to a new place, um, there can be pressure on the infrastructure. So one of the things we see is issues of garbage. Who's going to pick up the garbage? Where is the garbage going to go? What about playgrounds? Where are people going to play? Um, What are the the conditions like in these factories where people work? Are they safe or are they unsafe? Um, So there are lots of people who who are benefiting from this industrialization who are becoming managers. And we would see this, this is the creation of a middle class. And so they were looking around thinking... The the division between the have and the have-nots was too great. And if we were going to have this industrial democracy, we had to create ways to better the standards of living for everyone. And so public health is a way to do that. It's a way to think about your populace as an aggregate rather than as each individual for themselves. And so picking up the garbage benefits everybody. Um, having kids go to school through the age of 16 ends up benefiting everybody, right? If people can read and write in English, then they can read and write um, for the voting. So um, it, it's these ways that people began to look at the immense poverty around them and tried to come up with solutions and organizations to create a better society, a healthier society. And at the same time that this is happening, there are these changes going on in science, and so people, scientists in France and in Germany, begin to identify the um, bacteria <laughs> that cause many of our diseases. So once you're able to look under a microscope and figure out that tuberculosis is called uh, caused by a particular Um, microbe, you're then able to try and find a solution. And so while there are movements to pick up the garbage, create better water, then there are also movements to identify these microbes and then apply that knowledge to everyday life. So cleaning becomes essential because you're getting rid of these dangerous microbes. And we also begin to see the development of vaccinations for particular diseases where they're able to um, extrapolate that knowledge from, from the microbe and then um, create a vaccine. So it's this moment, uh, the late 19th, early 20th century is this tremendous moment of change, um, but also a tremendous and tremendous poverty, but at the same time, there's also this tremendous faith that if you apply knowledge and make people, make that scientific knowledge available to people, that you can create a better society. And so um, I always, I, it's a very optimistic period for many people. Um, there are obviously ways in which this period is, is not optimistic. If you're in the South and you're an African-American the rise of Jim Crow is certainly not a reason for optimism, but in these other ways of people trying to find reform to solve social problems, um, that that was very appealing to me to to learn how people identified a problem and then worked to solve it.
0: So let's talk, talk a little bit about how um, exhibitions, which are the focus of, of this book, come, come into the picture here. So how did exhibitions develop as a tool for public health education in the early 20th century? And then in what ways um, did campaigns to address tuberculosis inspire exhibitions that were related to more sort of, sort of social issues like industrial safety or child welfare?
1: So it's so fascinating because public health officials and public health reformers, because at this period of time, they're they're just laying an infrastructure for public health. And so many people who are not officials, right, they're not government officials, participate in this process. So with the people I look at are both official people and people who are just interested in reform and have the time and money to be able to engage in that kind of activity. And so they're trying to figure out ways, how do you, how do you convince people to change their behaviors and how, how do you go about that? So one way is to change laws. And so picking up the garbage is a great example of that. Well, let's create legislation that, makes, um, that, that transforms this from an individual responsibility to a civic responsibility. And so one of the things you see in cities throughout the United States is that um, the garbage becomes public, right? Becomes a public responsibility Um, or electricity. That's another great one that instead of being a private corporation, it's going to be a public utility. And so there are ways that people try and legislate change and they are in varying degrees successful. So for instance, you get at the federal level, Um, the Meatpacking Act of 1906 that's signed by Theodore Roosevelt. And he had, um, it's often said, Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, was supposed to change people's minds about um, the way of the world, right? The ends with workers unite, right? It's a socialist call for revolution, um, but in the end, people's stomachs probably were more impacted when they read Sinclair's very descriptive um, passages about rat feces in food. And so legislation, the Meat Packing Act, was supposed to allow consumers to feel um, that the food that they bought was what they, what it said on the package. So a sausage was really a sausage. Um, Same with the Pure Food and Drug Act of that same year, that the drug that you bought was really what it said it was. So protections for consumers. But a lot of the kinds of changes that people were looking to make, especially as they identified microbes, did involve individual behaviors. So sometimes this meant putting a screen on your window to keep flies out. (laughs) Now, uh, so they would do all kinds of Descriptions of why and how flies are bringing disease into the home. But sometimes the people that they were trying to communicate with didn't speak English. And so um, they would try and maybe make the um, leaflet they were doing in multiple languages. But they felt that visual maybe was the best way to go. And so for a while in the early 20th century, the best way to do visual was through pictures. And then you had to bring the pictures to people. So creating a space for exhibits, whether it was a storefront or a fair, or putting on a, um, I'll talk about it in a little bit, I think about the these trains that they would put exhibits on. Exhibits were a way to make this visual material available to lots of people in lots of places. And they they really, public health officials and reformers felt like If they could communicate the idea of a screen and a fly in a picture, that they would have more effect on um, public behaviors and convince people to change their behaviors. And so we can think about flies. You can think about washing hands. You can think about where do you put um, modern toilets, (laughs) uh, privies, what should they look like? What um, What should your house look like? What should your room look like? So they tried to visualize as much as they possibly could how to implement public health within individual homes, and how to change people's minds about what homes should look like or what their activities should look like. Can you tell us a little bit
0: about um, sort of what these what the exhibitions were like? Were they like in what ways were they like art, like museum exhibitions? And then you know in what ways were they more like? advertising public service announcements.
1: Right. And a little bit like the circus too, I think. So um, it's interesting because they, the art, especially in the beginning as places begin to, the first um, exhibits focus on tuberculosis. They're the first to realize that if they're going to confront tuberculosis, which was the largest killer Um, responsible for mortality of, um, in terms of contagious diseases in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, if they were going to get people to um, open up windows, stop spitting on the street, that kind of thing, that they needed these visual representations. And so they were the first to capitalize on it. And they would made it an event. So they would have images. They would have um, photographs. They would create um, these things called contrast rooms where a light would come on and you'd see a a room with maybe it was disheveled looking and then the light would go off and it would come back on and then the room was supposed to be clean. And so um, they created things with bells. Every time a bell rang was when someone had died of tuberculosis There was one um, person. So in the beginning, some of these artists are doing it on their their own. Um, I found evidence of this story. There was this um, Austrian physician, Philip Brower, who was hired to come over and create um, material for a hookworm exhibit for the um, International Health Commission, which was a Rockefeller commission. And so the Rockefeller um, Foundation wanted to display its work on hookworm in the United States, and they brought over this, uh, this artist who had created exhibits in Germany for a major public health exhibit there. And, he, and the idea was he would create these realistic images of people and of hookworm. And um, his displays of human bodies, both whole and in parts, were put at the um, the exposition in San Francisco uh, in the early twentieth century. And so these these were spectacles. People would come and see them, and they yes, they might see um, representations of people. They might see, in some cases, they're actually um, you could look under a microscope and you could see a hookworm hatching. Um, and then there was this uh, company. Uh, one of the early ways that these things circulated was there was a public health engineer and he was working in a public health department. And then he realized his sideline business of making different materials for exhibits was more money than he was making in his regular job. So he created a company and you could buy from his catalog, all kinds of things, the photographs, the charts. um, But he also had things like very macabre um, materials related to babies. So to talk about infant mortality, he might have a row of five babies that would go be in a cradle going down this um, this sort of little mechanized diorama. And at the end, one of the babies would drop off into a hole. So so he tried to find, people were trying to find ways to engage people's senses, both their visual senses, um, their, their hearing, anything they could do to sort of capture people's imagination. And they very much felt with these exhibits that they should be Emotional, that if you could tap into people's emotions, that they would change their behaviors. And another favorite example of mine is they they created industrial safety exhibits and they talked about industrial safety in terms of both the um, factories, but then also homework. And so one of the things they did is they asked um, workers to come in and they would take a picture, almost like Lewis Hine or um, Jacob Reese would take pictures of people's apartments to show um, living conditions and working conditions and how they were unsafe. And so they would bring in a picture and then they would ask people to sit there as sort of on display. And sometimes people would participate and sometimes people began to be upset by the way that they were being depicted in in, in these living tableaus. So but those are the kinds of of things that are on exhibit and that they're they're trying to be emotive and being trying to capture emotion and convince people is very much like advertising. And so these artists and um, people who are creating these exhibits are very well aware of advertising and how advertising would use clear lettering, try and be on point and not have too many messages um, passed out at once, right? Really trying to focus your message to convince somebody. And that way it is like advertising, but at the same time, the public health officials and reformers wanted to make sure that it wasn't too sensational And they wanted to make sure that scientific truth was embedded in all of their materials. And so where where advertisers can say whatever they want about their products at this point in time, public health officials wanted to stick more to the facts. They wanted to make them clear and so they wouldn't always give as much detail about the science as, as they could. Um, they made it bare bones in many ways, but at the same time, they they stayed true to the science. So um, in that way, it was different than advertising.
0: So you you devote a whole um, a, a chapter of the book to uh, to these things called health trains that sort of travel across um, states to deliver these exhibits to the public. Um, can you tell us a little bit about them? So what was the motivation for that? You call them kind of ex, that they were experiment that they, they were experiments essentially. So, what was the motivation for the, these experiments, and and then you know how, were they successful?
1: So those are a great question. So these health trains, so people are creating these exhibits, and at first these exhibits you would set them up in um, like the first tuberculosis traveling exhibit is set up in the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And they're set up in these large spaces, large exhibit halls, large exhibit spaces. But many people, right, aren't living in New York City, or they, they can't travel to Chicago, or right, that that's, that's a big ask for a lot of people. So what public health officials begin to think about and this starts in California is what if we were to put these materials on a train and instead of the people coming to the exhibit we bring the exhibit to the people and the first um, health train is in California and I think that the inspiration came from experiments in Iowa with agricultural trains so in Iowa they, they called them the corn gospel trains, and they would put materials related to how to grow better corn, right? Scientific ideas about growing corn from the University of Iowa, and they would bring it out to farmers and talk about how they could how they could be more efficient in how to grow their corn. And the same idea, the Californians take it and they use it for health. And so, right, you think California is a big state. So this goes through rural areas. It goes through cities. It goes all over the place. And um, they really tried to reach as many people as they could. And then this idea gets replicated. Um, Louisiana has the one that lasts the longest, uh, 1910 to, I think, 1928. It's a very long time. Um, other states also follow suit. Florida had one for a few years. Michigan, um, they're all over the place. And so the idea is you take this to both urban areas and rural areas and you reach as many people as possible. They enter the train, they see the pictures, they see the charts. They um, Maybe sometimes they would display a movie on the side of the train because it was difficult. Movies become a great way for transmitting information about public health. But in the early 20th century, especially like in the South, there weren't that many places that had the electrical capacity for a movie. And so this way you would um, put up, a sh- they would put up a sheet <laughs> and they would sort of display the movie. And they would also, um, in the South, this was also racialized. So They um, wanted African-Americans to have this knowledge and they would set up separate times for African-Americans to come visit the exhibit. So these health trains, um, they traveled within states and across state lines, both. And they're very popular for a while, but they're also really expensive. (laughs) So you had to uh, you were at the mercy of the train company to allow you to use their train tracks to be able to move your train about. Um, the trains themselves were expensive, so, and the upkeep was expensive. So many state boards of health said after one or two years, you know, th- this is too much, this is too expensive. And one of the problems with them was that while they were really popular, it was like the circus would come into town, p- lots of people go to the circus. Here, the train comes into town. Lots of people come to the train. Um, They would bring all the school kids to the train. They would advertise in the churches and say, go to the train. So it was an event. But the problem was, at the end of the day, for public health officials, how do you measure change? How do you measure effectiveness? And so they knew lots of people were coming and looking, but they didn't really have any proof that people were actually doing the beha- changing their behaviors. So they hoped they were changing their behaviors, but they couldn't prove they were changing their behaviors. And so um, things, you know, if it, it, be, it was very expensive to run the trains, and so they they end up on the chopping block for um, public health officials, they're just too expensive. And there's not enough in their minds, um, they don't have enough actual statistical evidence to prove their, their benefits. Did they try to assess them in any way, or um... they just tried to do counts? They really, they they could, they didn't move beyond counts, and they would have anecdotal evidence. They would say, like, "Oh, you know, this town, the butcher shops are much cleaner after we had been through." But six months later, they couldn't prove that the butcher shops were any cleaner than they had been before, and they didn't really try to. They didn't try and create a measure for effectiveness. They just, they were like, we're going to put this around and we're going to count the number of people who come. <laughs> and okay. That, and that <laughs> was it. <laughs> so yeah, they didn't have a, nowadays in museum studies, you would say, well, of course you have to have a, a way to measure the effectiveness of your program. Um, but they they didn't have anything like that in place at this time.
0: And of course, there were some
1: um, cases that you write about where anecdotally,
0: um the exhibits were actually were a little bit controversial. Um, could could you tell us about um, about a controversial exhibit and what kinds of dynamics um, in the pro- in the Progressive Era would would make one of these controversial?
1: Yes, I think that that was one of the fun parts of researching this. Is I kept reading about success after success after success. I'm like, these can't all be that successful. And I knew from my own experience creating an exhibit, like I, in, in helping to create an exhibit, I would go to other exhibits. And I once went through an exhibit backwards the entire time. (laughs) And I didn't know it until I finished the exhibit that I'd actually gone backwards. And so I knew that not everybody could be really that happy with these exhibits because that just, that didn't it didn't mesh with the experience of people telling me why they didn't like things. So I'm like, the people must have not always liked these. But one of the problems of reformers in the early 20th century is they don't like to write about failure. So you have to sort of ferret it out and find it and just sort of think about, well, where are they hesitating? Where are they, where are they backtracking? And every once in a while, you get lucky. And so for me, I got lucky in two cases where I found that there was a lot of evidence about people rejecting particular exhibits. One of those, uh, I think, my favorite. This is my favorite one. It's in Morristown, New Jersey, in 1914. It's because I think I grew up in New Jersey. It's my favorite. But um, but basically, this town of Morristown had a real division between the haves and have-nots. Part of Morristown was super wealthy. And then part of Morristown had working class immigrants, especially a large number of Italian immigrants. In the Italian immigrant community, there was um, various organizations to help them better their standards of living. So they were used to these reformers being around. And at one point, There was a study that was done of their living and working conditions, and that was pretty typical. Lots of things reformers did in the early 20th century was do studies, and if you could write down how many toilets there were, how many people living in a house, how many people had come down with tuberculosis, et cetera, et cetera, that you could prove statistically that there was a problem. So these reformers had come from a nearby um, institution, Drew University, and they had come through and they had taken down numbers and they had taken pictures of families in their homes and then they created an exhibit and basically they said there was a problem in Morristown. And as soon as this exhibit and the exhibit goes up on the main street of Morristown, New Jersey, in a storefront, and it's not just the Italians who are unhappy with this exhibit, they're also the businessmen of Morristown, New Jersey, who don't think there's anything really that wrong with their town. So the study comes out, the exhibit goes up, the wealthy from Morristown, New Jersey are not happy with it. And then In the middle of these um, public forums about the study and the exhibit, the school superintendent says something that gets put in the paper. And what he said was that, or he basically inferred that because there was a problem with enough room in the schools, that they were probably going to have to do something, either build a new school or they were going to have to divide the kids. And he sort of It gets reported that the Italians and the African-Americans were going to be segregated in some way together. And this tells you something about the early 20th century in New Jersey and racism. The Italian-Americans were very upset. I don't have any evidence about what the uh, um, African-Americans in Morristown thought about this. But the Italian-Americans were very upset with the thought that they were going to be segregated with African-Americans. And so they create a group that goes down to talk to the superintendent downtown. And while a few of them are finally allowed in to talk to the superintendent about what they read in the paper, another group breaks off because they're outside waiting and goes around the corner to the exhibit. And this is a group of Italians and they see their families on the walls and they rip down the pictures. And um, one of them is actually charged with, I think, mischief, malicious mischief. That was my favorite, one of my favorite comments. Um, And he he's arrested and he's he's given a fine. And basically what the Italians say is you put up our families on the wall as examples of horrible that these people don't know how to um, take care of their families, that they're disease ridden, that they're a problem. And they say and that's not the way we feel about ourselves and that's not why we wanted you to take pictures of our families <laughs> and so um it's this great moment of right every everything sort of falls apart for a second and then the public health officials they're on the side of the italians they're like this this, this isn't this isn't the way to talk about these families um and if there are conditions that need to be ameliorated, for instance, the street needs to be paved, um, that's one thing. But the, these people, um, the, Italian, the Italian families who let, their, uh, who let themselves be pictured, this isn't the way that they would talk about themselves. And so now this other group, this outside organization has created a problem for us. So, um, so that was where these, the, it's sort of interesting that this notion of, well, who gets to decide how to caption the pictures? And if you want to convince people that to change their behaviors, putting up a picture of them as, as, um derelict is not probably going to convince them to change their behaviors. So shaming doesn't work. We have an shaming early <laughs>
0: example of how, how that is uh, not the most effective um, public health messaging.
1: Right, right. And so um, there are sort of great articles about people saying like if you want people to work with us, you have to think about how they would see themselves. And if they really don't see the, you know, if they really object, they might tear it from the walls. So um, it's sort of interesting. To think about who are your who's your audience, and if you're and the idea, right? It was a great idea. Include people in um, in the exhibit a lot. You know, take these pictures. But if you're going to take pictures of people, you have to think about how how do they want to see themselves represented. Um, so so that was a really wonderful made the reformers think about what they were doing, and to be really thoughtful about their captions.
0: So you've talked about this a little bit already, but I wondered if you could um, elaborate on it. You direct a public history program. Do you see any similarities between the kind of progressive era public health displays that you write about in the book, and then sort of public history work that people do today?
1: I, you know, it's funny when I started, I, I don't think I ever imagined that the two paths would cross so seamlessly, but they really do. And especially in the late 19th, early 20th century, when people are experimenting with exhibits, experimenting with museums, experimenting with historic preservation. And so for me, when I talk about public history with my students and what their purpose are, what they're trying to do, I try and get them to think about, okay, you want to be inclusive. You want to include your audience, but that also means giving up some authority over your work, right? That you're sharing authority and the buck ultimately does stop with you that you're the person who's going to create the caption, but at the same time, you want to make sure your audience is engaged and feels represented in your work. Um, Because it's also their work, right? It's things that are important to them. So for me, they really do overlap in a variety of ways that you're not talking at people, but with people. And I think that's what public health educators in the early 20th century, and even today, you have to talk with people, not at people. And so sometimes that means that people may say things that you don't necessarily agree with, but you have to listen and hear them. And if you're trying to communicate new knowledge to people, especially like microbes in the early 20th century, how do you communicate that disease is caused by something you can't see? Um, and that, and how do you get people to understand that, believe it, and then take action based on that new knowledge. And that's not easy. Um, People like the knowledge they have and they don't want their, (laughs) people don't necessarily want their knowledge to be challenged. So how do you work with people to create something better for everyone is is not an easy question. And so that, that is the same with public history is how do you, how do you get people to be interested in the history that is around them, how to question it, and how to be okay with when the interpretation changes? Because just like our knowledge about science changes, so does our knowledge about history.
0: So, you know, we're we're in the middle of a global pandemic right now, um, and a lot of the public health mes- messaging about it has been really contentious, right? So, right? so things like wear a mask, you know? Um and so I just, I, I wondered if you could talk about how some of the tactics or exhibits in the book re- might relate to what what we see today in terms of um, health literacy campaigns or, or public health sure. campaigns.
1: I think one of the things that's so interesting to me is in the late 19th, early 20th century, public health reformers were very focused on school-age children because they felt that adults were a much more difficult audience to convince that adults had a particular sense of culture right that they they had traditions and so convincing adults to change behavior was often a much more complicated task than school age children where they felt like we've got you in school we can teach you about spitting, we can teach you about washing your hands, we can teach you about <laughs> maintaining a house, all of these things. Um, and in some ways, what I see today, even where I live, is that the messaging to the, that the students are getting through their school about wearing a mask is done in a very effective way there's like little superheroes um the superhero and the the messaging that they're getting our our school system is being very smart about this um someone is donated their time actually to do it and this the messaging for the kids is you're especially elementary school you're a superhero this is and the images are of um Kids of a diverse set of kids, so kids with um, physical um, impairments, as well as a little girl with a hijab, um, African American children, Hispanic children. So they've really done, thought through how do we make kids see themselves in these messages and want to enact what they see (laughs) in these messages. And so, like, they all have a superhero bubble. And so you can imagine then in the school, right, that your chair and your desk aren't a prison. It's your superhero bubble. And so the images we're seeing, for, at least from most of our elementary schools, is that the kids are wearing the masks. That, that they really, they're wearing masks. They get a break. They get breaks throughout the day. But they're sitting there at their desk and they're wearing the masks. And so it's not contentious. Um, now, with adults... If you go on Facebook and you look at our the county that I live in, and they're putting up messages about it's not too much to ask, to mask, and they get a lot of Facebook pushback. So um, I think just like in the early 20th century, that public health officials don't give up, <laughs> that they know that they use the science and that they let the science lead them. And that the, the science today says that masks can help stop the spread of the disease. Um, and the studies seem to be bearing that out. And so, uh, but it is interesting the difficulties that they had in the early 20th century still play out in, you know, the early 21st century, um, where people's skepticism about science is very real. And you have to acknowledge that it's real. And not just dismiss people's fears or skepticism, but that's that is very difficult. So,
0: well, Jen, we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, You have written cultivating health and exhibiting health. Is there going to be a third series in this? (laughs) A book Uh, in this series? What are you working on now?
1: i actually well. So I think the next one. I don't know exactly what the title will be, but it it's. one of the things I've been working on where I where I am is about civil rights, um, urban space and public health. And so one of the communities that was in the town where I, I live was displaced in the 50s and the 60s for urban renewal. But Florida is a very interesting place, as many people know, <laughs> and Florida was one of two states that rejected federal money for urban renewal projects in the fifties and in the sixties for about a decade. Um, it became the only one, actually, after a few years, and because the argument was that it was coming, uh, this was akin to communism. It's also the moment of the civil rights, so the the state of Florida didn't want the Fed, didn't really want to f- follow a lot of things, uh, programs for from the federal government. And so they reject urban renewal. So while around the country, there's all this money being spent to change city landscapes, Florida is rejecting it. Um, At the same time, they still want to do urban renewal projects at the state level. And so one of the ways that urban renewal happens in Florida is by um, declaring communities of color as places of blight. So I started looking at one community, and then I'm going to continue and try and figure out exactly what is happening in this state um, in terms of rejecting the funds, but pursuing urban renewal at a local level and what that meant, um, how that impacted African Americans, um, and so, and the ways in which the, the state health department and local health departments participated in that process. So. So that's what I've be, I w- I'm going to be working on for um, the foreseeable future once the archives open back up. <laughs> well, that
0: sounds like a fascinating project and another one with a lot of um, contemporary relevance for, for us today. Um, I want to thank you, Jen, for being on the show today. I
1: really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. I, I greatly appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about my work.